in the streets of Indianapolis, a German immigrant by the name of Clemens Vonnegut Sr. took a brisk walk through the streets, carrying heavy rocks in his hands and his trademark cape billowing along behind him. Clemens did this regularly in all weather and times of day. Although strange, he had the reputation of being a fair and honest man. With his exceptionally strong work ethic, he founded and ran the Vonnegut Hardware Company. Although a member of the famous DuPont family, Henry H. was quiet about it. He spent his days designing buildings and other everyday items on paper. One of those everyday items was a design collaboration with his neighbor, Mr. Carl Prinzler. On December 30, 1903, 33-year-old Carl Prinzler was in Chicago for business. With his business concluded, Carl found himself delayed in getting home. Deciding to pass the time, he planned on getting a ticket to see Claw and Erlinger's Mr. Bluebeard production at the new Iroquois Theater. But at the last minute, a train ticket came available and he rushed to get home to Indianapolis. Shortly after the events of the Iroquois Theater fire, these three men would come together and create something that is used millions of times every day and that quite possibly has saved your life. I'm Tim Coleman. I'm Jeff Moss. And I'm Tyler J. Thomas. Together we will explore and discuss these events from the perspective of over 30 years of combined locksmith and door hardware experience. This is The Three Tumblers. Now, The Von Duprin Game Changer, Part 1, The Power of Three. In the mid-1850s, German immigrant Clemens Vonnegut started the Vonnegut Hardware Company in Indianapolis. Originally partnered with a fellow German immigrant, the former textile ribbon salesman ran a one-room storefront at 71 West Washington Street. The street was a primary corridor then, as it is today, and the company sold general hardware, groceries, dry goods, coffin fittings, animal hides, leather, and agricultural supplies, and many other necessary goods of the times. After his original business partner left, Clemens and his son Franklin rebranded as the Clemens Vonnegut Hardware Company in 1857. In 1892, Clemens, now 68 years old, had handed off the daily operations of the company to his sons. Franklin would eventually become the company's president and continue his father's legacy the rest of his life. By the end of 1899, the company, now known as the Vonnegut Hardware Company, moved to 184-186 East Washington Street in a five-story building with a full basement. Just after this move, Clemens Sr. sold the previous location to former United States President Benjamin Harrison. They were also next door to the Lilly Hardware Company, 
and would purchase the company in a merger years later. Over the years, Vonnegut began selling many household items, such as cutlery, hand tools, and as times progressed, electrically powered appliances, such as washing machines and vacuums. The customer created catchphrase, you can get it all at Vonnegut's, became an advertising slogan known throughout the area. Jeff, at the hardware store uh, that you've been associated with for a long time, do they sell coffin parts there? I mean, not officially, no. (laughs) I think they're on back order. (laughs) So, I mean, we think about it being kind of weird that they would sell, you know, coffin parts and animal hides at a hardware store, but not that long ago, you could walk into... uh, little mom-and-pop hardware stores all throughout the southeast, I know, uh, where you could buy guns and ammunition, hunting supplies, canned food, uh, all kinds of stuff. And it's kind of sad we don't see that much anymore. Um, But I guess those were just the last holdovers from classic hardware stores. Yeah, and and throughout history, you know, the hardware stores pretty much sold anything that you couldn't eat or wear. Um, you know, you had soft goods, which is clothing, you had foods, and you have everything else um, called Hardlines. And there's actually a hardware store news group online. It's called the Hardlines Digest. And it's all a bunch of hardware store people around the country. Um, but if you, you know, look back into that, you know, how we have these discount stores today that sell everything, a lot of the hardware stores were like that in a way. Anything you needed for a building, including but not limited to the kitchen sink. You know, you didn't have a lot of specialty retailers for one specific thing. You know, the catalog houses carried everything. Or, you know, they were maybe a major supplier in the area. And and there are still some companies like that. But, you know, for the most part, it's pretty, you know, today they don't stay... They don't get out of their lane. But back then, you know, that company could have been the only, one of the only suppliers in that area. So they had to carry everything. At 16 years old, Carl Jacob Prinzler began working at the Lilly Hardware Company as a sales clerk. It was quickly apparent that he knew nothing about hardware when he sold a clothes washing machine to a woman who needed to buy a new butter churn. Fortunately for Carl, a co-worker stepped in and helped correct the situation, and Carl later joked about the incident. A year later, in 1887, Carl left the Lilly Hardware Company to work for the Vonnegut Hardware Company. After eight years of hard work and developing a better understanding of the industry, he was promoted to manager of art hardware and building materials. The Vonnegut Company opened a retail store at 120-124 West Washington Street in 1898, and Carl had an office in the building through most of his career with the company. In 1903, Carl was in Chicago for business. Although he tried to get a train ticket home that Wednesday, they were sold out. 
Deciding to make the best of the delay, he made plans to go see the production of Mr. Bluebeard at Chicago's newest theater, the Iroquois. At the last moment, however, he was able to buy a train ticket to get home that evening as he had originally planned. When he stepped off the train, he saw the headline of the Indianapolis Star saying, 500 die in theater fire at Chicago. The revelation that he could have easily been one of the victims struck Carl to the core. Only because of chance or divine intervention was Carl able to get an early train ticket home to his wife Nina and their three-year-old daughter. This would certainly put a new perspective on life, knowing that you almost lost yours. So I can't even imagine what he's feeling because I've never been faced with a situation like that. But that's got to make, you know, the next hug feel much better or the next, you know, bite of food tastes much sweeter. And on top of that, given his job role, his employer at the time, as we're going to see, that's going to motivate him to do something about what narrowly or almost claimed his life. While I was writing this segment of this episode, I remembered a incident that I responded to when I was an EMT. Hadn't been an EMT, but just a few months, and we were dispatched to a car wreck on a little sort of shortcut road that was very curvy uh, near my house in the, in the small hometown I grew up in. And I get there, and it's a head-on collision. Guy in a pickup truck, he's moaning, he's you know crying in pain, so I know he's breathing, he's still alive. I walk up to the woman in the other car, and she was dead. Uh, she died on impact. I hadn't thought about that call in years, but just to think that if the man in the pickup truck had been two minutes earlier, two minutes later, uh, decided to go down the street and take the other route that was maybe one minute longer, he would have never suffered two broken legs like he did. That was just a chance encounter. You have to think about that all the time. Uh, we drive on freeways and, and back roads and all kinds of places. Until you see it on the news, you don't realize how close you just came to possibly being a victim in that news story. Yeah, it's what they call the butterfly effect. Just that one little got a, got a ticket, got out of town, didn't die. Having experienced such a close call with fate, Carl approached his neighbor, Henry H. DuPont, who is an architect and designer of many products. The two men worked in their off hours, probably in their basements or garages, discussing and figuring out how they would design a piece of hardware that would prevent people from being trapped inside of a building. The Iroquois Theater not only had inward swinging doors, but they were also locked shut, preventing the panicked crowd from escaping the huge fire. At the time, there was no kind of door hardware that would allow someone to quickly open the door from the inside during an emergency. Since the most common lock in use at the time were mortised body styles, they typically had round knobs to retract the latch and use keys to throw the deadbolt. In an emergency, 
This would require someone to produce the key, insert it in the lock, turn it to retract the deadbolt, and then turn the knob to retract the latch. If the door opened inwards, that person had to fight back the push of panicked people to get the door open. Outward swinging doors to escape through were random fortune at the time. His knowledge having grown since the butter churn incident, Carl was familiar with many different kinds of door hardware and their workings. From the reports about the Iroquois Theater, masses of people died because they could not unlock the doors from the inside. So Carl and Henry began designing a hardware device that required no special knowledge to operate and would unlock and open the door just by pressing on it. Although the collaboration between Carl and Henry initially took place in their spare time, five years after the Iroquois Theater fire, another tragedy would take place that drove them to make their project a reality. One of my favorite quotes in life is, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. So Carl has the opportunity here to solve a life safety dilemma. And on top of that, he has an employer that has access to manufacturing capabilities. And then he has a neighbor who can help him design something that can be taken to manufacturing. You know, it's easy just to say, oh, this is how I would do it. But you've got to design something in a way that lends itself to manufacturing capabilities. At least at that time, you can't just say, I need this or that. And then they've got a machine that can do it. So that's the, that's the opportunity. And then the preparation is, is just that he's going to be working with his neighbor and they're going to hopefully, well, we know what they're going to do, but they're going to work together to put something together that will ultimately save lives. So now it's just up to him and DuPont and Vonnegut to make it come to fruition. But like I said, luck's when opportunity meets preparation and here's opportunity and preparation meeting up and uh, fate's kind of along with the ride. This is like, you know, one of the American dream type of stories where you don't hear about it, though. It's not, you know, you hear about Apple Computer and Microsoft and these businesses that people started in their garage. But this one is a lot, happened a lot longer time ago and is probably more impactful. So I think that it's really cool, you know, to learn because obviously I knew about the hardware, but I didn't know the story and the whole the whole thing because it's you know a hundred years ago and people really don't talk about a theater fire a hundred years ago we just know that it's part of the code that you need panic hardware it's part of the code that the door has to open out you know but these guys really took something that didn't exist but you know it was a, a melding of their minds as you know and they figured out a better way to do something and I think that that's sort of like stuff that we always grow up hearing about but this is not one of those you know back in the I think it was late 90s like 98, 99 we saw the movie October Sky about Homer Hickam who basically you know developed rocket science as a kid in his backyard Uh, we've never seen a movie about Carl Prinsler and Henry H. DuPont Um, So, yeah, like you, Jeff, when I was researching this episode, it was really cool to learn about this collaboration and just think, you know, that's how 
that that's how great things come about. But uh, we see this every day. Uh, we don't know. People outside of the industry don't know what it is other than is supposed to be there. And they know that you just do something and the door opens. It's pretty cool. Right. They don't they don't know the why or the how. You know, same thing like if you were to see a car without airbags today. Right. <laughs> Where is that? You know, it, it's something that you're used to over the past, you know, 25, 30 years or more. Um, and something that you you don't have to put this in if you want to. But I've been, since we had our last recording or whatever, and you're talking about double doors, like places that I go, I've been looking at the door to see, does that other side actually open or not? And so far they all have, which is good. Yeah. Hopefully, you know, this podcast, like the goal of this podcast is to educate locksmiths and door hardware professionals throughout the country and just get them to think a little bit more outside the box. I think thinking outside the box is critical no matter what industry or profession you're in. But when you do have that creative streak, uh, you can do some really great things. And, you know, we have two people coming together here that uh, create something really good. And we're going to hear a little bit more about that later on. On March 4th, 1908, in Collinwood, Ohio, the Lakeview School caught fire and burned. 172 children died in the incident. The news of this disaster pushed Carl to make his idea of the self-releasing fire exit device not only available for sale and installation, but a reality in all buildings that were open to the public. Carl and Henry had approached Clemens Vonnegut with their project years earlier and he had given his approval of their work. However, on December 13, 1906, Clemens passed away. President of the Vonnegut Hardware Company, Franklin Vonnegut, had been in the loop on the project as well though and supported Carl and Henry's efforts. With the help of attorneys Hood and Hahn, Carl Prinzler and Henry DuPont filed for a patent four months and nine days after the tragic Lakeview School fire. The device used a crossbar in conjunction with a mortise body lock and was the first incarnation of the modern day exit device. It allowed anyone to press against the bar to open the door, which, because of its design, required the door to open outwards thus allowing immediate and unobstructed egress. The push bar was also made of polished bronze or brass so that a panicked person can easily see the device that will let them escape to safety, even in smoke-filled or otherwise dark hallways and rooms. If the person trying to escape still cannot see the push bar, properly installed, it would be at waist height allowing a person to simply fall or crash into this bar with their body and the door would still open. And that's why they call, or some people call them crash bars. There's a lot of different names for them. Exit device, panic bar, crossbar, which is kind of a 
it's a form factor. It's it's not all, but it describes some. It's just a bar that runs across, uh, not connected to the door like modern ones are, but they still exist. They still make them. You see them a lot in older universities, hospitals, things like that. Uh, the only delineation that I know of is that when you describe a exit hardware or exit device, that typically refers to one that is fire rated or listed. Uh, but other than that, the term is used interchangeably today. But that's, you know, that's kind of how all of them came about. You guys have taught me to be a stickler for terminology. I no longer say IC core and any of my coworkers that say that I give them a hard time about it. Uh, but one thing that my boss did train me on at first was it's not a crash bar. It's not a panic bar. It is an exit device. That's how it is listed in the hardware catalogs. That's what it is called. So that's just my little nitpick to the world. Locksmith or anybody installing door hardware should call it by its real name, exit device. Also, the fact that uh, Carl Prinzler said that the bar needed to be made of polished brass, you know, you would think, okay, back then, if, if you were an outsider and you hadn't heard that, you would think, okay, brass is what you make, you know, the, the components of most modern locks out of. Uh, brass is easily you know, formed, malleable, uh, you can do a lot with it, and it, you know, it stays looking nice. Uh, it was a popular material, still is a popular material today. But to think that the reason why you wanted the exit device push bar to be brass so that it could be easily seen, you know, any reflective light off of it, and, you know, they're against doors of the same color for aesthetic reasons... And I guess if they are properly installed, then it would be okay. But still kind of makes you hearing this kind of makes me think that, you know, maybe aesthetics aren't all that. Even if the function is still there, having something that reflects what little light might be in the building would be useful. Yeah. And that's the good thing now about um, exit signs above doors. Uh, oftentimes they have auxiliary lights, or at the very least, they illuminate themselves. They are tied into their own power source so that in the event of a fire, um, there's a little bit of redundancy there to ensure that you can see at least the exit. And now they've even got some exit devices that have not illumination capabilities, but glow in the dark. You know, you see that too on stairs leading to these doors. It provides a kind of a visual indicator uh, in the dark to how to get to one of these exits, how to get out. And then the other thing too is, I think I mentioned this probably in season one, but the, the beauty of these devices is that let's say you're not panicked. Let's say you're hurt, you're injured. You gotta get out. You just run into the door and the device takes care of the rest. And that that's the beauty of them is that you can be in a bad spot, a bad situation physically, and you can still get out. You don't have to fumble with a, a knob, a lever, anything like that. You can run backwards into it, sideways, frontwards, with hands, without hands. You can kick them open. You can get out. It's real easy. Yeah, no special knowledge required or anything. 
Well, as Carl stated, if the person trying to escape still cannot see the push bar properly installed, it would be at waist height, and they could simply fall into it. So if you can stagger to that door, and that door leads you to safety, then as long as you can fall into it, you're, you've got a fighting chance there. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could push somebody else into it and it would open. In previous episodes, we've talked about the inward swinging doors at Iroquois. We've talked about the narrow doors at the Lakeview School. Even though they were outward swinging, they were too narrow. And just these pileups of people upon people, uh, triangle shirtwaist, people had to try to pull the door in. When you have that that pile up at the door, there is no way that you're going to be able to overcome that. No matter what you think prior, when you have a crowd of panicked people behind you, then you're not going to be able to get out. But if you have this exit device on that door, then you can literally be propelled right out of the building by that crowd behind you. And the only way these devices will ever work or can be installed is when the door swings out. So they they remove inward swinging doors after this, or by and large started to, depending on you know where you are in the building, but especially for exits, corridors, stairwells, things like that. So it, it forced them to change the configuration, the swing of the door, as we call it, so that uh, it goes out now. And you don't have piles and rushes as people are trying to get the door open. No, it just, it, it falls open. With the event of the Lakeview School Fire, Carl later wrote, By that time, we felt something must be done. We had in mind several things that could be done, but we weren't satisfied. In other words, to the writer, it was a case of fight. In the early days of the Builder's Hardware game, we had met many problems, for which we usually had a solution. As a general thing, We turned the problem over to our friendly factories who made the item for us. We sold it, got our money, and we were happy. But here was a situation confronting us that meant we must do something today to prevent such horrible catastrophes as these. So finally, after a number of experiments and expensive ones, we hit upon the idea that the writer thought would be a boon to humanity. After filing the patent, Carl Prinzler and Henry DuPont entered into an agreement with Vonnegut Hardware Company to manufacture, market, and distribute the device. Almost immediately, the self-releasing fire exit device was a success. Much work was put into the marketing of the device, including illustrated sales catalogs and written explanations to potential customers. Face-to-face interactions were not just a simple matter of, here's this product I'm selling and here's how much it costs, but rather, this is what has happened in the past. Here is why this product is important, and here 
is how it's installed. With devices starting to be sold across many different cities in the United States, it was soon considered to be not just a nice feature to have, but a necessary one too. The original installations of this device took place in Indianapolis at various schools around the city. And ironically enough, about three decades later, some guy named Frank Bess is going to roll into town and he's going to sell his revolutionary lock idea to those same schools. So Indianapolis, believe it or not, has uh, Indianapolis schools have unique distinctions as they pretty much were the testing grounds of two of the most revolutionary lock ideas of the 20th century. Well, yeah, I, like I was saying earlier, the, they these guys brainstormed and they, they came up with the idea. They didn't just tell the factory to figure it out. They, you know, I'm imagining, you know, some guys with a bunch of, you know, tools in their garage just figuring stuff out, prototyping, this is going to work, this won't work, um, you know, still the way we do some stuff today, you know, you might call them like a grease monkey, you know, guys working on a car. So they realized that there was a need, they couldn't wait for the engineer, the factory, whatever, so they figured it out themselves, and they literally rolled their sleeves up, which you don't see today, you know, you're, you know, the guy's name is on the patent, but he may not be the one who actually literally figured out how it worked so that's something that is very inspire inspirational and um like to hear stories like that for sure that these guys did it themselves because they knew how important this was as locksmiths you know we we have to be creative when installing hardware sometimes uh holes don't line up where you need them to or maybe somebody swiss cheese the door before you got to it so we have to be creative there but how many times just think, how many times have you been working on something, taking a lock apart, putting one back together, trying to rebuild one, that you had to make a tool yourself? We improvise, adapt, and overcome. And these guys, though, they took that to the next level. Like you were saying, Jeff, they sat down, they worked it out, they prototyped it, they drew it out. Man, what I would give to be able to go back in time just to watch them I mean, that would just be so amazing, and it, it really sucks that we don't have any pictures of that, of their prototypes. We have early pictures and drawings of the device as far as the patent, but what didn't work, and where did they start, and how did they evolve that idea through? That's just fascinating, and it, it's really sad that that is lost to history. And, and two things. Number one... They did it with a mortise lock, which makes it so much more complicated. Uh, nowadays, majority of what we see with exit devices, they're called rim, which they're mounted to the surface of the door. The latch is on the surface of the door, and it interacts with a strike on the frame. But a mortise is inside the door, like we've discussed. So they had to make a device that mounted to the face of the door, worked with something inside the door, which is just far more complicated than just putting everything on the door and leaving it at that. So that that's incredible. And then the second thing, uh, Jeff, you like these stories, and if you're listening, if you like these stories, just wait, because, I mean, this is the first of many as far as people coming up with fascinating ideas that ultimately change the world. 
and the, the neat little stories behind them. I mean, this is just the first of many about to come out. Although initially marketed under the Vonnegut hardware brand, the three parties involved felt as though it needed a more recognizable name that would be synonymous with the device itself. With some creativity, it was settled that the brand should be a combination of the names of Vonnegut Hardware, Henry DuPont, and Carl Prinzler. This gave birth to the name Von Duprin. Carl Prinzler was placed in charge as manager of the manufacturing process for the product. Sales and popularity were steadily increasing around the country and gaining traction quickly. However, just a few short years after the Von Duprin self-releasing exit device was placed on the market, tragedy struck yet again, this time in New York City. The owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory had been strongly advised to install exit devices on the doors of the work areas. Their failure to do so contributed to the deaths of 146 people, mostly women and young girls. Next time on The Three Tumblers. That's a personnel problem. That's an employer problem. That's not a life safety or a security problem. Most of it was a Von Duprin 99 series. And anything new that they put in is going to be like that. Years and years after Lakeview and all these regulations, it was still permitted for the doors to be 28 inches wide. Executive producer is Tyler J. Thomas. Technical producer is Jeff Moss. Writer and editor is Tim Coleman. For source materials, see our website, 3tumblers.com. Get this episode and others wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a 3Tumblers production. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.